Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Alex. Alex, for everyone out there listening who might not know who you are, you want to introduce yourself? Sure, sure. My name is uh, Alex Dimitriou. I'm the owner of uh, Silicon Psych. Uh, we specialize in psychiatry and sleep medicine. Um, yeah, my background is in psychiatry and sleep medicine. I'm boarded in both. Um, yeah, we help people out with sleep and we help people out with daytime symptoms with the belief that there's a very close relationship between the two. And uh, we've had a lot of good outcomes, getting people to sleep better and to feel better during the day. With sleep, why'd you get interested in sleep? I'm an insomniac. So this is like a very big topic for me because I only get like, I get a, like when I sleep, it's like for 30 minutes or maybe an hour, but it's the deepest sleep of my life where I feel like I've slept eight years. But then it's just, I don't, I have to get up and go do something. I can't just lay down in bed or I'll be staring at the ceiling the whole time. So uh, th there's a lot to say there. And there really is a lot between, I think, how we how we operate during the day and how well we sleep at night. Um, my theory on that, as I, as I work with a lot of people on this, is that there's like a very close relationship between, well, th there's like this balance between being asleep and being awake. And some people are wired to kind of be more on the wake side. So on the wake side, you have kind of like anxiety and, and an active mind, maybe ADHD for some people. Um, and there's people that are just like hypervigilant. They're always thinking, their brains are always going. They're always like, thinking about stuff, whether it's worry or ideas, positive or negative. Um, there's people, for example, one thing that I love to ask my patients is like, are you able to nap? Um, there's people that'll say that they're exhausted, but they cannot nap. And there's others that'll be able to clock out and take a two hour nap. Um, I take a good amount of naps. I would say maybe like, cause I get up at 4.30 to go to work. So I'm usually there till like one or two. And then by the time I get home, I usually take like a small nap, but it's like for 20 minutes, I wake up starving. Even if I just ate before I go to bed, I'll wake up after that nap, just starving. Um, but then it's hard for like later on in the night, it'll only be 30 minutes, an hour. Now when it, with sleep though, they say eight hours. Is that true? Like that can't be true. Oh, right. okay. I think, and, that, and that drives a lot of people crazy also, because like everybody's like, oh my God, I have to get eight hours. And it's like, I, I've seen plenty of people that get by just fine on six and a half. Um, I've seen plenty of people that need to sleep eight and a half, nine hours, but the, the range is pretty wide. Um, at the end of the day, I think though, you know, it, the real test is, so I would say there's a minimum of about six. I think if you're getting less than six hours, it's, pr it's very unlikely not enough. Um, but for everybody else that's getting more than that, the real test is like, how, how well do you feel during the day? And one of the things I also like to look at, I call it like, you know, it's the afternoon dip. So everybody like around siesta time, right? Like after lunch, we usually get a we usually have a period of like feeling a little more sleepy. Um, if you're really sleep deprived, then that can be pretty substantial. And like you, you are like passing out, like, oh my God, I need to get to a bed because I'm, I'm like falling asleep in the meeting. Um, normally for everybody else, you just get a little sleepy, you yawn a little bit, but then it's over in about an hour. Um, so for me, that's like the canary in the coal mine. If you're not getting good sleep or if you're not getting uh, enough quality sleep or enough quantity sleep or both, then people tend to be pretty wiped out in the afternoons. And uh, if you feel at any point like, oh my God, give me a bed, I need to sleep. That's a sign of hypersomnia. So one of the things I should also point out, we, we should always distinguish between being tired and being sleepy. 
So being tired is like, I'm tired. I don't have the energy to do the things I want to do necessarily. Um, sleepy is like, given the opportunity, you would fall asleep right now. And I think a lot of people walk around feeling tired and many things can make you tired. But being sleepy is a, is a different thing. And that, that's kind of more closely related to biology and also more closely related to the quality of your sleep at night. So I think for anybody that's trying to figure out how much sleep should they be getting, there's a couple of things I'd look at, you know, how exhausted, how sleepy are you during the day? Um, you want to make sure you're not masking that with like, you know, three gallons of coffee. Um, and also I'd take a look at how you feel um, at the end of the, at the end of the day uh, in, in that siesta time around, the, you know, two, 3 PM. If you're exhausted, yawning and like can barely stay awake, that's sleepiness. That means your sleep is not right. Now with uh, your, well, with your work though, how closely do you test the, I guess the relationship between your mental and your physical, because when I look at like mental health, for instance, there's a lot of people that just are mentally exhausted. And I feel like that plays a where even if they just wake up, if they just are having a bad morning, or if they're having a really they just got rough news, they usually want to take a nap, or they want to lay down, or they just they feel like they can't have the strength to move their body. So I, when people say like, you know, you need your eight hours, I go, well, if someone who just got the best news of their life that they're about to be a father, that eight hours doesn't mean Jack, they got more energy than a, a, a shot of rum and Coke. It, 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 they're ready to go. So I, I look at it like, like with mental health, for instance, like you can even take alcohol, for example, alcohol is an antidepressant for a lot of people. It makes them kind of tired. Maybe some people, it just kills their thoughts or their emotions in a sense. But I look at like the mental health aspect of things. If you're not right, if you're not feeling good, if you're not energized in that category, I wouldn't say it really links into the spiritual, but in a sense, I mean, you can correlate, you can correlate it to that. You just, you, you get, I, I don't know, you, you, you get energy and at the same time you can get sleepy. You can feel like you're more complete in a sense. And I feel like a lot of sleep scientists only tackle the science aspect of it. Okay. It's gotta be the diet that you're consuming. It's gotta be these types of things. I'm like, sure. Those can play a factor, but what happens if all those things are fixed and that person still can't sleep? What do you look at then? Do you start examining if their life's in shambles, if their life is going through a rough spot, if they're having maybe some depression issues or something like that? And you'll find that with sleep, the less you get, it doesn't like for me, it doesn't affect my physical well-being. It affects the emotional and mental well-being. I feel like I'm more angry at times. I feel like I can be depressed at times more as well, too. Um, and they're like, well, you need your eight hours. I'm like, yeah, but that, that's the thing is like you're not giving me that that what's that gap filler? Do I need to talk to my therapist? Usually after like a session, if you talk to someone who you're really close to, you're like, I need to get that off my chest. That's what everyone says. But then you can you probably take a nap or get a little bit of sleep afterwards because you feel a little bit more rejuvenated because your workload is less. So everybody's kind of different. I'll be honest with you. But you, you raise an interesting point. I don't know that, that piece about like getting good news and becoming wanting to like lay down and get some rest. I think that's a that's a generally a good state to be in, and not many people would probably complain about being sleepy in that situation. And it's probably pretty rare. On my end, what I often hear is like bad news made my sleep completely disappear, or made me really stressed and I couldn't fall asleep or I couldn't stay asleep. Um, the other thing I should say that that you 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 touched on that I think is important. So, uh, you know, mood states can start to look a lot like you know like so for example, people with depression can sometimes be sleepy during the day. They definitely will, will suffer in terms of uh, energy and motivation. And I think one of the important things to ask anybody, I think if they're kind of dragging is like, you know, there's people that'll say like, I want to do things, but I don't have the energy to do it. Like, I'd love to go to that dinner or I'd love to do this event or something, but man, I'm tired. Like I'd love, to, I'd like to go to the gym, but I'm tired. 
Um, and then usually people with depression, it's a little different because they'll actually not have that initial, they won't even have that desire. I, I, I've seen that more more often in my practice where people will say like, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm exhausted and I don't really care to go to that thing, you know, and I don't really care to get to work or go to the gym or whatever, but the motivation is also absent. So I think that's an important way to kind of look at the difference between depression and fatigue. Depression, unlike fatigue, also you realize has like a bit of like a sadness to it. By definition, it has to, right? It's like a loss of joy and pleasure and a generally low mood on more days than not for like two weeks. So usually tired people are tired. Depressed people are tired, but they can also have an element of sadness to that as well. You, you touched on another really interesting thing, which was also like worth a lot of discussion, which is things are a lot worse when you're sleep deprived. So here, here's what it is. I've often believed in my practice that like impulse control is like one of the highest human functions. Impulse control lets you defer gratification for later. It's the marshmallow test. It's what lets you say, I'm gonna eat two marshmallows later, but not have, not have one now. And inevitably what a lot of the data supports, and it, it came up also in Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, sleep deprivation makes you impulsive. And that's a huge problem because um, if there's a negative thought that's like circling in your head, it's harder to stop it. If there's something on the tip of your tongue that you're, that you're trying not to say to somebody, you're gonna say it. Um, to me, impulse control is almost like, it's like the brakes on the car. And if the car doesn't have brakes, then you can go down some pretty big hills. And that means that the things that would normally be upsetting or bothersome or annoying really get magnified times three because you have no ability to manage them or your impulses around them. To me, impulse control is like, you know, and, and you see it by the way, tired people, you know, everybody's vices get worse at night. If you think about it, right? Like people tend to drink too much do everything too much from potato chips to food to Netflix to whatever. They don't do that in the morning. They do that in the evening. And the reason that that happens, um, even on weekends when you don't have work, is that you get more tired as the day wears on. And as you get more tired, your ability for impulse control diminishes. And that's why it's, it's hard to stop binging on the potato chips. But mentally speaking, people also can get bingy. And if you don't have enough sleep and your impulse control is not so good, maybe you have ADHD. Maybe you have depression, maybe you have anxiety, but a lot of things can really run amok because you have no ability to put the brakes on them. What do you stand in the aspect of dreams? Like, I, cause the way you're, you're talking about with impulse control or just being able to control yourself, I find that like, if I don't get enough sleep or something like that, and I can tell I'm reasonably tired, I'll be more apt to say something to somebody that maybe I wouldn't say if I could rationally think about my choices. Absolutely. It's like that sensor bar is gone, but oh, I also look filter, at like the filters gone. Yeah. When I look at dreaming, for instance, that same part of what I think about my impulse control, I think in the same aspect of where it is located in my brain would be the same part where I dream. Because I notice that like, I feel more fulfilled when I have a dream or I can remember a dream rather than when I don't have one. People making an impulse control or a decision on the basis of that, that if they're tired, for instance, is a great example of just maybe a good aspect of getting some sleep. But when you look at like when someone is able to get some sleep, maybe they had a great day and they're able to actually fully get some sleep at night. How many people are sleeping at night? There's not a whole lot of people that can sleep a good seven hours or however long all the way through without tossing and turning, getting up and going to the bathroom. Now you can eliminate that with physical habits sure but then we examine the aspect of a dream for instance i feel a lot more fulfilled when i wake up after a 30 minute sleep but the dream lasted like nine hours it felt like you know that to me is it, it, when i wake up my day's better even if it was a low amount of sleep that there's an impulse boost there there's something there um where i would 
have a strong, I guess, argument to the aspect of, I think your emotional state or these little happiness, these mental kind of clarity moments that you get from either a dream, not saying you're pulling anything out of it, but just that moving picture that happens. It's something that you don't recognize consciously. Like you go to work, you're like, I just had this dream or something like that. But I feel like subconsciously it checks a box. It hits something there where the rest of your day actually might be better than if you wouldn't have had that dream at all. Now that might be just like a pseudoscience or something like that, but I link it into this aspect of there are a lot of people that either if the dream was scary, if the dream was this, but you've always, or at least I've always heard of a lot of people really pulling something out of a dream, whether it was good and bad. And I feel like that affects you on such a level where it checks that box where it might be listed under subconscious that actually might impact your day. Well, I mean, for sure. So you, you got to go through a certain, you got to go through certain sleep stages during the night, right? And those things will vary from like, you know what I mean? Like you, you need to go through deep sleep at the beginning of the night. That's that sleep where you wake up and it's like you, if you've ever woken up for a flight at like 3 a.m., you're staring at the alarm clock, you can't tell what time it is. You know what I mean? Like your brain is like slow. So that's like slow wave sleep, right? That happens. After that, you got a little bit of light sleep, which comes in and that's at the beginning of the night and like later in the night. Um, towards the morning, you end up with a lot more REM sleep and REM sleep is dream sleep. And what inevitably happens, I think, is like if you're having good, a good dream life, it probably means you're, you're, you're sleeping well into the morning which is when you kind of tend to get a little bit more dreams. So it could be almost that the fact that you're dreaming more is really evidence of the fact that um, you're actually sleeping in better into the morning and getting adequate sleep. So it's almost like it, 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 it's correct. Yeah, you feel better probably because you slept better that night and that better sleep is what allowed you to dream. What is the common problem that you face like uh, with your work? Like is like maybe a, a common diagnosis of somebody that might have a sleep disorder or something? Is it mostly insomnia? Or are you dealing with other people that are? I think we, 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 there's a lot more insomnia than sleep apnea. You know what I mean? As far as sleep alone is concerned. But then there's like other, other psychiatric things that we work on as well. Anxiety is really common. Depression is really common. Um, and those things interact with sleep quite a bit as well. Um, both in the sense that, you know, poor sleep can make anxiety and, and ADHD or depression worse. Um, it can also make substance use worse. And there, there's like bi-directionality, which is where I think we kind of, you know, really, really are able to help people because we work on it from both ends, uh, the sleep end and the, the symptoms by day end. But, but to answer your question, like common, common things that we see, insomnia is so common. Um, and we have people that can't fall asleep. There's three kinds of insomnia. There's initiation insomnia, where you can't fall asleep. There's middle insomnia where you wake up in the middle of the night many times. And then there's terminal insomnia where you wake up way too early and you're like, I slept four hours, five hours. I'd like to sleep longer. It's a Saturday and I can't. Like what's, well, how, how should this spark up during the pandemic? Like how many people got anxiety, depression, all these factors where their sleep clock was all got a lot worse. It all got a lot worse during the pandemic. Um, certainly from all the psychological things that happen to people and all the worries, financial and, and child keep and child rearing and all that that occurred during uh, the pandemic. But the bigger thing that also happened during the pandemic, which is what I call home office syndrome, um, which is what happens when you work at home and there's a complete loss of the boundaries between work and play. What ended up happening to a lot of people I've worked with is like, you know, you're never the boundaries are blurred and you're always working. You're kind of always trying to relax and you're not doing either of them well because you kind of lost those like, you know, distinctive boundaries between now I do this and then I do that. Work from home, I think is a wonderful thing, but um, 
for a lot of patients I work with, they, they also lose like that, that clear divide line between work and play. And they're never really relaxing and they're never really working efficiently. So it all becomes a mishmash and that can be stressful for people. And, uh, you know, also work from home really messed with people's sleep because now schedules got altered the same way. People started working later into the evening than they would normally do. Um, now you have the ability maybe to sleep in a little later than you normally would. And uh, sleep loves rhythm. And I think during COVID, we kind of lost rhythm, you know. It seemed like home was an escape from work for a lot of people. But when that home and work kind of tied in together, there was a lot of people that were just they had a different environment or a different energy that was in the room where it was very, very hard for either people to get sleep or even people to be able to function back to what that relaxation or get into that relaxation mindset is because at any moment you get a text saying, Hey, can you hop back online? I need you to check a couple of things. And then next thing you know, you find people later working on their computers, having multiple screens up. And next thing you know, it's the middle of the night and they haven't even paid attention to their mental well-being or their physical well-being. Yeah. And I, and I think even before work from home happened, I think even with the advent of like smartphones, basically, like people lost that downtime that I think was so precious. There were times I think, you know, you used to stand online at the supermarket and like just space out or like look at the magazine covers or something, you know, you'd walk to your car and you'd have time to think about what, you know, Robbie or whoever said to you that day and process it for a second. And now what happens is like everybody grabs their phone as soon as they're at a stop at a traffic light. And, uh, you know, scanning through the inboxes and tweets and news and weather and all that endless information stream. And, and it's cool, don't get me wrong, but the problem is that the, the brain also needs a little bit of like downtime to like process things. And people, I think, you know, when they don't have that, the brain starts kind of doing that when you turn off the lights at night. You know, so like when you're trying to go to bed at night, you finally have silence because you finally put your phone down. There's a lot of unresolved issues that your brain needs to figure out. And, uh, and I think that's where it starts impacting things like sleep. But it also kind of like impacts, I think, our overall well-being because it's like the, the clutter is coming into the house faster than you can clean it, you know. And uh, and if you want to, I don't know, let's say defragmenting your hard drive, you know what I mean. Your heart, you you're, you need time to do that. And uh, and the, and the level of busyness and activity that we have, which was compounded during COVID, where now you're theoretically available anytime, um, work from home, that just like further killed any like off time. I feel like dreams, that's what I was talking about with dreams was that they were, are that defragment, defragmenting the hard drive in a sense. A lot of times your dreams happen to do with problems that you're probably neglecting on the side part. There's just been a lot of worry in a lot of people's lives. I'm starting to notice not only just because of the pandemic, but a lot of people, if you notice when you walk around during the day, there's a lot of people on autopilot that are just doing the same things that they know to do. They're not even really thinking or acting in the way that you know a normal person would. They just give you automatic responses. Hey, how you doing as they're walking away from you? Like you, you expect to stand and talk to someone when you ask them how they're doing and generally look them in the eye and ask them. But a lot of people just are on this one track mind mentality. And it's, it, it's, it's really brought up complicated issues for me because I look at an aspect of brain fog. I don't know if you know what brain fog is after COVID and all that, but that's exactly what the autopilot thing is, except this is uncontrollable and you can recognize that type thing. Like I had COVID, I got over it and um, I have brain fog. There are times I, I can't even function, like shut off the podcast. I can't do uh, any conversations. I just feel like I'm all over the place. And it, it, it makes it weird because it's like it, it exactly what that feeling is. The only way I could describe it is when you do not get enough sleep and it's one o'clock in the morning and you're ready. Like I could drop right here to the floor. Mm -hmm. 
And that part of your brain where like you lose thoughts, you lose all these aspects. I see that in everyday life now. Like I'm starting to notice like my empathy goes out a little bit more to other people that are just on this routine lifestyle so much where it makes me not want to be on it because you look at it and you're like, man, you're going to wake up from whatever this autopilot is and it's going to be five years. It's like playing video games all oh, night. Yeah. So, so one of the biggest reasons I'm, I'm all about trying to like help the patients that I work with, my friends, my family is like, I think. The, 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 the most annoying thing I see happening to people is like missed magic moments is what I call it. Like just non-presence. Like you just went through an experience. It could be college. It could be, uh, you know, a stint at work. It could be a, a situation at home, but you are so lost and either lost in your own thoughts or just exhausted and dreaming about sleep while you're walking through the world or preoccupied with something your boss said um, that time is ticking and, and you're missing out on like otherwise beautiful things. And again, this kind of comes back to impulse control in a way, because to me, a lot of the life, a lot of our life experiences, like the way I see it, like in life, there's potholes. There's like things that, that like, it's like driving in through, through like a maze of potholes. You can go through the potholes and it can hurt, or you can just acknowledge them and drive around them. And having impulse control lets you do that. It lets you say, okay, I understand this is a problem. I understand I'm, I'm worried about these things, but I can stop myself. I can move on. I can be present at that date that I'm on or that time with my family or that time with my kids. Um, and I think for a lot of people, many things feed into that fog, um, certainly fatigue and sleep deprivation, certainly post COVID symptoms can do that, but also depression and anxiety to me, you know, th these diagnoses are far less like, you know, I, I mean, definitely there's, there's a textbook model to it, but I think we all have varying degrees of depression. I think we all have varying degrees of anxiety to me. Anxiety is really the thinking problem. I think some people just think too much and, uh, some people are too sticky you know, their, their thoughts are loopy. It's like, you'll think about the same thing over and over and you can't stop. I think a lot of us are wired that way. And uh, I, I would, you know, reach out to you or your viewers and say, whoever's had children, you might've realized that even six months from birth, from the time they were born, kids are biologically different. You know, not, not all human beings are the same. And, uh, and I'm actually writing about this in my own book. The model I look at is like, I think a lot of our behaviors can be deconstructed to certain very basic drives among them, you know, mood. Some people are just naturally happier and some people are naturally more, can be a little more down. Um, anxiety, to me, anxiety is the thinking problem. I think if you ask anxious people, are you anxious? They'll all say, oh no, I'm not anxious. And I've written articles about it, even like too anxious to get better. Um, but anxiety is like the thinking problem or the stickiness problem. Some people are just sticky. You know what I mean? They, they loop on things. They can't let things go. They can't stop eating the potato chips. Sleep is another factor, um, mood, anxiety, sleep, energy level and motivation. Those are core things that'll determine how you operate. Impulse control is another one. And the other one, I, the last one is cognition. I, I call this mosaic, but the last one is cognition, which is like your ability to learn. There's some people that I think can sit in therapy for years and be told the same thing over and over and they just don't get it. And there's other people that like, okay, yeah, yeah I understand that they, they internalize it and they, they move on. I think you take all those core things and add to that years of experience. If, if you're anxious, if you're moody, if you're impulsive, that's gonna shape the way people interact with you and the way you interact with the world. And kind of like a tree, you start growing like many rings of layers around you. On the surface, your personality can look tremendously complex. But at the core, the theory I'm working on at least is that you've got these five drives basically that will ultimately shape your personality, your interactions with the world, your ability to sleep, your ability to, to say, hey, this thing is annoying in my life, but I'm done. I've kind of processed it. I want to move on.
And, uh, and we all interact in this fascinating way, but I do think that this stuff is the skeleton. And these are the things that I work at in my practice um, where we identify which, where, where is it? Because the really fun thing is like, once you identify something, you can make predictions where people are like, oh my God, like, how, how did you know that about me? You know, but I'll give you an example. Like if I work with a patient, I've worked with patients that are sex addicts. And in some cases there too, you realize that that's an impulse control problem. And they're always surprised if I'll tell them, I bet there's other binge behaviors. I bet there's other things you can't stop yourself from doing. I bet that there's episodes of rage attacks and people are like, oh my God, like, how, how did you know that? Well, it makes sense because if you, if you can understand that core operating skeleton, I, I think you can understand a lot of things about yourself and, and the people around you. Would you say that the if you could really take a poll out there or just your general opinion of the gen, just the public in general when it comes to, do you think that people are relatively happy or do you think people are just relatively in a state of, I would call it being numb. It, I would I would honestly call it being numb because I look at so many factors during this pandemic of what could have led people to have more anxiety, more depression. And there's a lot of factors you could list off. But one thing I keep thinking about is there's a large amount of people out there that also have a unrealistic expectation of time. They think that they they, they, they got to constantly go, go, go. Maybe that's with attention spans, with constantly so being on these- in, in situations like that, I, again, I don't want to keep bringing it back to impulse control, but like some of us say yes to too many things. And then time becomes a problem. You know what I mean? Time is something you need to protect. And if, you've, if you can't hold your ground and hold your boundaries and, and say no to things, you can easily end up with, you know, the same way your, your house could end up cluttered with hoarding, your, your schedule can end up cluttered with things that you just could not say no to because you didn't have that impulse control to do so. Ah, I see. You can say that it's impulse control, but everyone's going to be like, well, what, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Are you offending me? You well, no, no, no. And, and it's, it's not. And I think we should recognize that we're all prone to this. Yeah. But truly, I think it's the ability to say, hey, like, I, I just I'm taking on too much. I need to take measures to take on less. But, I, but it's the ability to stick to it also. That, that's, a, that's a superpower. And there's many ways to get there, I think. Do you think if people recognize they have impulse control and they need to take on less, that they end up dropping off mostly everything and then getting stuck in that state of having nothing? Like, there's a, like I've been I've been bringing this up because I've had a couple of friends who are now older, but they've been smoking marijuana for a very, very long time. And I've kind of cautioned against it, mostly because I'm, I'm not a big advocate for it. I don't care if you do it. Um, but they're coming to me now and they're like, I wasted so much of my life. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, I, I should have never smoked pot. And I'm like, well, I've never heard that from anybody. And they're like, yeah, but it's left me in a state of like, I feel like I was frozen and now I'm thawing out and I'm starting to realize it and keep going back to it. You stay in the same spot, the same place. And you're having, it's not just like just depression that leads to self-thinking or self-critical analyzation, I would say, but it's going with everything. I feel like this is just becoming a new thing of the public now. I don't know if that's because of the time thing, people having this unrealistic expectation of time, because I know plenty of those people sleep pretty well. Maybe it's a healthy sleep. I don't know. But there's a lot of people that are analyzing themselves. And I feel like it's because society either put an unrealistic expectation of what you can be. And a lot of people didn't achieve it. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a lot a, of that. There's a, there's a great book you got to read at some point. Have you read Sapiens? Oh yeah. yeah. I know what you're talking about though. So I haven't Sapiens, read it. I advise everybody, my patients, whoever like read Sapiens chapter 19. The, the name of the chapter is like, and they lived happily ever after, which basically raises the question. So human beings now, have, you know, hot running water, you know, no, no, all their teeth are still in their, in their jaw. They, they sleep on a, in a warm house and on a cozy bed. 
are we any happier than we were before? Because the, the data seems to support that we live better than kings lived 50 years ago. You got everything. You could, you could get on a plane and fly across the globe right now. No king could have done that 50 years ago even. And he raises the question. He's like, you know, are we any happier? And in the end, I, I love Noah Yuval Harari, the author. I mean, he, he raises a great point, which really resonates with what I see in, in life. There's three things he says that make people happy. The first of which is your biology. He argues that some of us are just born to be a little bit more chipper than others. Others are born to be a four. You know, there's people that'll be a four if they have a perfect job and a perfect marriage, they'll feel, they'll feel like a six sometimes. But they're, but they're hovered, their set point on the thermostat is a four. And then there's some people that are born to be a nine and things could suck and, and they'll still feel like a seven. You know what I mean? And if things are great, they'll be ecstatic. And it's true, you see people sometimes under extreme duress that seem to have this positive put together, you know, centered attitude and they're just, it, everything's gonna be all right. And they can say that to you genuinely. And then there's people that will freak out and, and get upset and get depressed in, in situations where you'll be like, oh, that's not such a big deal. So anyway, three things to make you happy. The first is your biology. The second, he says, is your expectations, which is so true. And in the society that we live in, you're always looking at like Facebook, Instagram, whatever, social media, you're comparing yourself to the world constantly. So it's easy for expectations to run amok. The third thing he said was virtue. And virtue, the way he described it, is like believing in something greater. You know, for the Protestants, it was like the Protestant work ethic, work, work, work till you die on earth and maybe you'll go to heaven. Um, for some people, it's even experiences like parenting. And he gives that example. A lot of parents, if you poll them randomly while they're being a parent, are you happy right now? Are you happy right now? You know, we'll send you little texts. Everybody's like, oh God, this is miserable. But when, they, when, when the parenting is over and they look back at it, they'll say, this was a glorious experience and I'm so grateful to bring these kids into the world. But it's almost like they forgot all the pain along the way. Anyway, that's an argument in favor of virtue. So believing in something greater also it seems to give people's life meaning and to make people happier. Um, in a lot of those categories, the last two especially, expectations and virtue, where society is gone, it's kind of pushed us away from that. Expectations, you're flooded with them. And you're always easily compared to Joe, John, John Doe or Jane Doe next door. It's so easy to just compare yourself constantly. Um, and in terms of virtue, we're, we're in a phase now of like tremendous self-empowerment and self-empowerment can be scary because now it's like there is no religion. There is no institution. There's nothing to really tell you what you should be doing. And I think a lot of us love that. But by the same token, that also leaves you in charge of deciding what's meaningful to you and what should you be doing. And for a lot of people, that leaves them scratching their heads and, and not knowing where to go. And truly, I think that's why we're not really happier than we were 100 years ago. Um, I, I think the problems have changed um, and the human brain ultimately works on differences and changes and it has to be sour to be sweet to some extent and uh, and it's just relative I think there was a time when you were you know if you read some of these books there was a time when being a you know, caveman times you had a one in three chance of dying by homicide like that that's that's a fact like people think oh being a caveman was romantic and so on no people there, there was like tribal warfare you had a one in three chance of dying like this applied to all your peers by, by homicide. And the theory is that we're probably not much happier now than we were then. Our problems have just changed, but everything is relative. And now it's like, oh God, I didn't get enough likes on my post. But for some people, I mean, we see how devastating that can be. And truly it is. Well, I, it's just I, all relative. 
I think a lot of people are like, you probably know this from a doctor's aspect, but how many people come to you looking for an answer to the problem that they have? I mean, look, they want to fix, right? And you're trying to help them out in the best possible way. But how many of those people, they expect a doctor to give them the answers rather than look inside themselves and see if there's something mentally or something in their life that they could possibly fix. It's kind of like, um, I went to school for chemical dependency, but there's a the thing with rehabs that Carl Hunt has like a really strong point about that you can do drugs effectively. Now I went to school for the opposite views. So it was kind of hard to kind of tear down my own ideas in, in, a, in a sense, but, um, it makes a really strong point. Any of these rehab facilities, they're only there to really help you out with the drug that you're experiencing or addicted to, but they don't really fix a lot of the core problems. And it's, I go, yeah, you're spot on. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I think as far as you look to me, there's three tips of the iceberg. And they're uh, sleep, sex, and drugs. I think whenever there's an issue with any of those things, it's rarely in isolation. If you can't sleep well, like there's something beneath that iceberg. You know what I mean? Uh, people that have issues with sex, uh, whether it's sexual performance, uh, uh, I don't know, there, there, many, any of any of many various sexual things that, that are amiss usually require further investigation. And the last one, you're spot on, is drugs. Because I can't tell you how many people I've treated where people will fixate on like, oh my God, this guy's got this like drug addiction. And truly that's a problem. But this person's also like depressed or they have a family history of bipolar disorder. And this is the only thing that this person could have figured out to like slow their thoughts down at five o'clock in the morning when they couldn't sleep. Um, I'm not saying it's like the right answer, but I'm saying that it, it certainly merits deeper investigation. Because uh, as you said, I, I think drug use, gosh, there, there's so many reasons for that. Um, and a lot of times it's, it's not the only thing. It's not just in isolation. We talk about um, people, for instance, when we look at an aspect of people trying to define about who they are, um, what aspects and characteristics I feel like weigh a lot on a lot of people. Um, when we talk about anxieties, you mentioned, especially with people who are like addicted to something, drugs, for instance. I mean, there's a massive amount of people that feel like a, a pill is the answer to fix everything. It's going to fix their anxieties. It's going to fix their depression. It's going to fix this. I'm not a person that goes towards pills. I rather, I don't even take Tylenol. I rather just like try and find ways to cope with it and find ways to deal with it because I feel like you can eliminate it without a pill. Now, for most doctors, that's kind of like uh, just, you know, science works, take the pill. But there's a large amount of people out there that are taking more pills, but they're not seeing the same effects that they used to see from the thing. I mean, that is building up a resistance to it, it is getting used to it, but it's not declining. It's actually getting worse. I mean, even during the pandemic, there was an opioid huge issue that's kind of still going on. But it's people that are trying to mask pain in a sense as well too, whether that is, whether that is pain that takes a drug, but I feel like with a lot of this as well too, a lot of this comes from a balance, not, I'm not bringing it to like a meditation aspect, but a balance within just one's self, a little bit of recognizing the issues that they face as well too. You know, if people worry, they go, I need, must have anxiety. I need to go take a pill for it. It's like, are you worried? Or are you just worried about life shit like bills and other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're spot on. And, and honestly, it's, it's a funny segue, actually. So the name of the book that I'm halfway through writing, I'm looking for an agent as we speak, is called Meditation or Medication. Okay. And the idea there is like, I think there's way too many self-help books that are kind of like telling people, well, take cold showers, go to bed at this time, wake up at this time, exercise, do these things. And don't get me wrong, that stuff definitely helps. I think for any patient that I see, like it's, it's always like, let's work on your core biology first. To me, that's like sleep, exercise, meditation, Mediterranean diet. If you're not doing any of that stuff, like you're, you're, you're behind if you want to get better. Um, but also the flip side of that, I got to tell you, is I see a lot of people that have tried, you know, I, I joke, it's like if you've been using the Calm app at 3 a.m. for the past 10 years or five years, it, it might be time to do something else. 
And I, that's where the book kind of like tries to straddle this answer between psychology and biology. Um, because at the end of the day, I think for some people, like I, I've met patients that have tried everything for, you know, 10 years that have sat in therapy, that have done all kinds of like deep introspections, ayahuasca ceremonies, cold showers, you name it to try to get to the meaning of things. And then I put them on an antidepressant and they're like really much better in a month. And I'm not saying this is the answer for everybody because the book actually gets into that, right? Like at what point, you know, there's a chapter I've, I've written, which is like, is it you or is it them? Right? Like, in other words, are, are you like having a bad day? Like, is, are you annoyed at this person? Right? Or is it that really just like, you know, like everybody in your life truly, like this is a difficult time and you're reacting appropriately. So one of the things, I, I don't believe the a pill is a magic cure for everybody. For some people, it, it actually is though. But there's also lots of other people for whom I think you need to look at like, well, you know, do you have an issue with just this person in your life? Or does everybody seem to annoy you a little bit? You got in trouble for doing this thing at home. Is it just at home that you do this thing wrong? Or is it more pervasive? I think when things become a little bit more pervasive, and also when you look back at your life and you're like, yeah, that's kind of a pattern that I think I've had since I was, I don't know, seven. I think you're starting to get into biology. Um, and I think the answer there really is a little bit of both. But the part, the part that really inspired me to write the book is that a lot of people are suffering, um, missing life's magical moments because they're just trying to sort of like brute force through it and do a lot of behavioral interventions where to me, at some point, it's like your vision is bad and you need glasses. And you could go through life squinting really hard or, or ordering things only with like large print and so on. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, there's also eyeglasses. And eyeglasses would make your vision much better and correct something that biologically is, is off. You know what I mean? And, it, and I think, again, it's a spectrum. And uh, I, I think you need to look at people's life functioning overall. You know what I mean? There's people, how, how debilitating is this thing that you got going on, this quirk? And also how pervasive is it? Because if it's pervasive and it, this quirk applies everywhere, and this quirk has been around in your life since you were eight, it might be time to, to kind of look at it biologically also. And that kind of brings me back to kids. Even my kids, two of them, I can tell you, one is like excited, jumpy, barely sleeps. And the other, my other kid like sleeps like a baby. And uh, she doesn't really get that annoyed at things. She's kind of calm and composed. And they were born that way, Robbie. They didn't, they were too young to learn these habits when they were six months old or a year old, you know? And that to me at least speaks to the other half of the coin, which is our biology. Um, and I, I think it's so important that everybody's kind of aware of like themselves, their own hardware, as well as their software, you know? Well, as much people that want to feel like they got this, they're this individual aspect of themselves, they look for a cure that fixes what someone else used. Like everyone's looking for that roadmap to success. And it, it, it's like really, really weird because it's like you like to be an individual. You like to think of yourself as the only one that thinks like you do. But at the same time, you're taking all the rules and all the ways that someone else took. Like from – I never got motivational books. I always thought they were kind of dumb. Um, I get it. I like, I'm sorry if you read one or anything, but I, I, I get it. it. It works for some people. I think it's – you know. but at the same time, you have to work with what you got. You know, If I have ADHD, I can't stop myself from being super energetic. So what do I do? I do a bunch of podcasts. I do something that I feel like is going to push me forward in a sense of where I feel like I want to go. And it's fulfilling when I do these conversations. It gets to meet interesting people like yourself. 
Now, for a lot of people, they have anxiety, they have depression, I have depression, but a lot of people have it way worse than me. And it's to a point where it's demobilitating, I would say it's making them stay inside of their home, it's making them never want to leave, it's going to make their life on freeze again, and they're upset that their life's on freeze. That's yeah, the issue. Like that, I mean, at, at that point, people like that, I would say, look, if you're debilitated in s several ways, because of your depression, let's say like, it is, I mean, therapy and, and more psychological interventions are okay. You should do that. But there's also at some point, like, like talk to a psychiatrist and think about medication at some point. I think there's people where you look at their families and it's like great grandmother was like hospitalized or depressed. You know, grandpa was, had issues with drinking and depression. And you were depressed since you were six years old because you were picked on in school and you were very sensitive to it. Highly sensitive people. So much to say about that too. But when you look at someone's lineage like that and you see that there's like so much such a trend towards depression and if you're in a situation where you're not functioning well I, I think the threshold should be pretty low to get help because there's excellent help out there and i think everybody hears a lot of horror stories about psych meds and even you know like everyone's afraid that they're going to get flat they're going to turn into a zombie or they have a friend that took these things and did terribly i i can't tell you enough like truly i do my job and i love my job because people get better 90 percent of the time if I gave people a placebo pill and I didn't know it was going to be a crapshoot, if I gave them a pill and there was a 50-50 chance that this person would be worse, I really would move on to another career. I couldn't sleep with myself at night. And that's actually the reason why I love psychiatry. I, I was supposed to be a neurologist by training, but in psychiatry, I really felt like, oh my God, these people get better. Like when, when the therapy is right, when the meds are right, it's transformational and it's like magical when like this anxious person who showed up in your office, like sweating and like tachycardic, their heart rate was like 120, is now relaxed in this like beautiful, calm human being that you can talk about the weather with. And uh, to me, that that's mind blowing. And uh, that's the impetus for the book as well, because it's like, I think too many people are suffering, determined, headstrong to like, I will not take a pill, I will not submit to any kind of like biological intervention. But that's almost like saying, you, you refuse to wear eyeglasses. I do. I do. There's, they're still sitting in my case on my shelf. And by the way, I should tell you, I've written a, a post on this. It was on psychology today about like too anxious to get better. The thing with anxious people sometimes is like they think they can think themselves to death and you can overthink things so much and have so much doubt about any maneuver that you end up doing nothing or you end up doing a lot of things very poorly, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You tried supplements, you tried meditation, you tried everything for five days and then you quit. And now you're left thinking, oh gosh, that didn't work either. But that's that sort of impatience that I think anxiety comes with. And another cool way to think about anxiety that I want to share with you. Um, I kind of lately think that every human being's mood states are almost like a stock graph. And some stocks are volatile and some stocks are steady. And I can't tell you how many times I've had patients come see me where they're like, oh my God, like I feel great today. I was off work. I had a cup of coffee. I read the newspaper, but I don't know, Alex, but like three days ago, I hated everything. I hated my life. It was a, an FML moment. Like, this is awful. I, I like they were in the depths of despair and depression three days ago. And today they're fine. And to me, what I've lately observed, I think we all have mood states. That's your mood. But your mood volatility is your anxiety or your ADHD. And I think everybody that's listening and you as well and me as well should think about how volatile is our mood. In other words, if somebody tells you something great or you hear something terrible will your mood sink from a nine to a two? And how long will it last? Mood volatility is anxiety and ADHD. That, that, that's intensity and impulsivity right there. Well, that's what we, uh, you talked about earlier, where it just they are 
like the are are we happier than back in the day or is it just our things around us have just changed i mean if you look at like people's problems for instance i mean problems compared to back in the day yeah they've changed but they've also gotten minuscule when it comes to the sense of comfortability we're a lot more comfortable with things it's ease of access going to a grocery store you got to worry about bills sure um so problems take a hold in a different way but i also feel like with your reality everyone is living in their own reality as much as we agree on the same basic stuff but that knob, you can crank it up to 10 really, really quickly. Like people that find themselves on days where they're, their whole world's apart and they just feel like they can't live anymore. And then the next day, they're like, why the hell was I thinking like that? It's because they, they take that knob and there's something, a thought that pops into their head. Like when you were just explaining that person that goes, I don't know why one minute I just felt severely unhappy and the rest of my day and then I'm, I'm changed. It's because there was a thought in their head that came through that wasn't a very good thought. And they tend to open it up like a fortune cookie and then use that as the life philosophy for the day that's yeah. yeah you're spot on exactly there's people that are intense and and they obsess and they, they will circle on the same thing over and over and over again and and yeah if then you got to be careful what you put into the mill right like what kind of what kind of like substrate are you putting into this because if it's negative you're going to amplify it times 10 and obsess and freak out about it but the good news is the same if you get really good news there's times people will be jumping for joy ecstatic and everybody's like, this guy needs to chill a little bit. This is a little too much. But I, I caution that the same, the same volatility upward is the same volatility downward. And uh, the best advice for those people that, that experience life in that way, I think definitely focus on your biology, make sure you get sleep, exercise, meditation, and a healthy diet. But also I think the best advice is that sometimes the best decision is no decision. You need to learn to sleep on it. And you need to also sometimes learn that, well, it helps to have the awareness that you're a volatile stock. It helps to be aware that, okay, I tend to react intensely to things, but these moods also tend to change pretty quickly. And the answer then is to sleep on it. Do nothing. You don't need to decide now. You don't need to celebrate. You don't need to dive into despair. Acknowledge that you tend to be intense about things and, and give it some rest. You don't need to decide this right in this instant. Well, when it comes to biology, do you not feel like that leaks into biology, all the factors that you're consuming around you today? Tremendously. Okay, Absolutely. But, but will that affect future generations? Like, here's my big thing is I've always talked about like social media has a really weird way of distorting perspectives. And it also it's like cranking up the people like to level 10. So a lot, I think it's a lot of it's the disconnect, like you don't see my face, you don't know. So you can just easily leave a bad comment or something. But even with masks, for instance, that was like, if someone wasn't wearing one, you were people would run up to that person. You see these videos where people are screaming at someone about putting on their mask or something. That person was cranked up to 10 because I think they built an argument in their head where they had this whole interaction of how this was going to go. This person's going to say no to me and they're not going to listen to me and then I'm going to have to yell and we're going to have to get in the shouting match. So when they come up to the person, they confront them and say, put on your mask. The guy goes, okay, sure. And pulls it up and they're like, ah, 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 ah. they don't know what to do because they already built this distorted kind of, or, or this, I would call it future tripping, I would say, or you're more worried about like what's going to happen in front of you. Now I look at that as, does that leak into future generations that are going to be coming up? And is that a cause of social media? Is that a cause of something else? Because how many of my grandparents or parents had depression? We've seen the depression rates increase through the generations. Now, if that's an aspect of social media, yeah, but if you're having kids that are being put on pills at the age of seven or six that are being diagnosed with being super anxious or do, my parents did the good thing and we're like, no, we're not going to put him on medication for ADHD. We're going to let him figure it out. And I did. I calmed down drastically. Um, more like I found a vice for it. But when it I, comes I just, just to comment briefly on that and, and child development in general, I got to tell you, I've noticed at least 
So what, what are the positives of what we're talking about also? Realize like anxiety and ADHD, just to give you an anxiety, an example. Anxiety, the other way I look at it is like it's the care problem. People with anxiety care too much. Um, people with ADHD, so ADHD is a dopamine issue. Dopamine makes you visionary. Dopamine makes you unorthodox. Dopamine makes you an out-of-the-box thinker. It makes you pathologically curious and it makes you passionate. Um, those are the positives. The, the particular combination of ADHD and anxiety, I think I've seen in a lot of very successful people that I've worked with, because in some ways the ADHD is corralled by the anxiety. You, if somebody has that particular combination, they have the, the crazy wild creativity of ADHD that's corralled into usefulness by the walls of anxiety telling you, your ADHD might say, oh, you shouldn't really care about that test in two weeks, but your anxiety makes you, makes you care. And that particular combination, I think, makes you both care and creative. And, uh, and I think that's probably why you do the work that you do. And, you know, your, your podcasts like, cover a variety of, of various topics and, and you're passionate about it. But the reason you get up every morning, you're like, oh, God, I really need to do my podcast today is your, is your care problem, if you want to look at it that way. And that's not a bad thing. Um, and society, I, I think, to get back to your question about, like, where's society going? I, I think I call it the Yelp effect. And the Yelp effect is like people go on Yelp to really say something either really good or really bad. A lot of, I think 80% of people that go eat at a restaurant and just have like a great normal experience don't care to Yelp about it. Um, what I think you're seeing in cases like masks and, and all this like, you know, news and media coverage is like, because media and, and phones are recording everywhere all the time, you're getting to see the crazy outliers. You know, I, I think nobody's filming the guy that like was asked to put a mask on and he's like, okay, sure, no big deal, right? But I, I think what happens with social media is like, because everybody has a voice and people certainly love drama. If you think about it, like look at the news even, right? People want, people want sensational things. People want to read, oh, whoa, what, what happened? Oh my God. Nobody wants to read like bland, boring, like it's bland and boring, right? So social media kind of like lets you see the outliers more, but it doesn't necessarily mean, I think, that there's more outliers. Just like you said, maybe there was no, not as much depression back in the day. I think we're probably measuring depression more now than we ever used to. I think maybe there was a time when, hey, we didn't have antibiotics. Like you were lucky not to get an, a limb amputated. So there was no time to worry about depression in the time when there was no antibiotics, right? And I think gradually we're coming to the point where our minds are becoming the most valuable and important thing in our lives. And we're trying to fine tune that. And so much of the work that I do, actually, I see it as like, it's not, it's not, repair as much as it is optimization. It's saying, hey, Robbie, like you have ADHD or you have depression or something like this. Well, how psychologically can we intervene, right? And then biologically, like, do you need, do you need help with that at all? Like, maybe you can fix your sleep. Maybe you can watch what you eat a little more. And my hope there is at least to be consistent in whatever we do, because a lot of times people, whatever intervention they do, they're not consistent about it. Anyway, to come back to the societal question, um, I think we're seeing a lot more of the outliers than normally we would because there's just more visibility. Um, people, want, people want drama and sensation. As a general whole, I think society is slowly going in the ADHD direction, right? I don't know if you remember, but they used to say back, back when I was growing up, movies used to have longer uncut scenes, right? The scenes started going faster and faster. And then it turned into like MTV where it was like, you know, a, a half a second splash image of this and then an image of that and then this. Now people don't watch even movies anymore. People want to watch YouTube videos and eight minutes is too long. And now we want tweets and we want shorter, shorter, shorter. Um, I definitely think we're going towards a, gosh, so many inboxes and so many data stream society. Um, I don't know how our biology is going to react to that.
but we're, we're seeing it. With uh, Nickelodeon is the best example. If you look at Nickelodeon's commercials or their intro to their show back in the day, it used to be three minutes long and it dropped down and it's a 20 minute clip you can watch on YouTube, but it drops down all the way to what it is now where it's Nickelodeon and it's gone. And it shows the attention span, how it's changed over the past, I think like 15 years or something like that. But do you think this fine tune or what you want to call optimization of trying to figure out this depression issues and kind of trick the mind in a sense, I kind of analyze it the same way I look at when I talk to a scientist, like who I talked to a scientist a while back who studied quantum like physics. And he was trying to say, that it's like analyzing the particle down to the particle down to the particle. And then as soon as he started describing that, I was like, yeah, but it's like overthinking, isn't it? It's like overanalyzing. Because I think throughout society, you're going to find people want to find out who and find a deeper understanding of what they are. You know, that's you're going to have everything that has intelligence trying to figure out what they are, trying to figure out who they are. A person can do that about their life goals, but uh, the human species can do that to try and the minute particle of what they are. And I go, but you can lead yourself to your own destruction when you infest your whole entire mind with this overthinking type scenario of trying to analyze every aspect where there's no belief and there's no mysticism anymore. Now, I don't, uh, I don't follow that at all, but I think that's a prime importance to make aware that when you open up the door to one thing, you're shutting the door on another. And when you do that, it might necessarily in your eyes be good, but for the general public, are they prepared? You know, not everybody's at the same level, that person who's making those giant strides or trying to cut these ties to they're not on level 10, they're on level like three and they're slow pacing it. And at this point, you know, everyone goes, well, I can't wait for you. So I have to go. And it's like, well, hang on a second. You can't just forget everybody. Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. But I, I would also say that, like, I think like most systems in nature, um, I think you, you should look at for usually for a balance. I think nature kind of abhors a vacuum. And uh, I think to anybody that looks at themselves overly biologically or overly psychologically, or anybody that's completely closed to any sort of spirituality, um, or or totally or totally enmeshed in spirituality, uh, I think it always helps to have one foot on the earth and one foot in the heavens. It's nice to dream, but it's nice to also be real and get your work done and, and do the basic things. And I think, um, yeah, I, I, it's all a balance. I think, and it, it's good to sort of be dynamic. I have a, I have a lot of theories on this. I mean, to speak to spirituality, I'll often say that if you if you're at the top of the food chain then the only way left is down. And that's not a good way to live life necessarily, you know, assuming that, you know, this is as good as it's gonna get possibly, and that's it. Um, if you look at things like even how we function through life, I, I'm a believer in what I've called the, the, the balance between Darwin and Buddha. And I use the term Darwin loosely here, but I think we're, we have Darwinian drives, which is like kill, kill or be killed, conquer, rule, be number one, make more money, get more education, get more view. Just like be, be active, show up and, and be the best. And on the other end, you have the Buddhist view, which is like, hey, we're all connected. We're all part of this thing together. Help each other. We're not, we don't need to compete. And uh, gosh, you know, when you die as a Buddhist, you, you go back to like the sea of the cosmos. You know what I mean? And if you die a Darwinian death, you're just a pile of carbon atoms that decomposes into nothing. Um, the ultimate answer, I, I think, is really somewhere in the middle, like for all things. And uh, a lot of times people ask me, you know, the question I've had for a lot of Buddhist instructors that I've met is like, how much should you care? Right. And, and one of the best answers I've heard is like, you know, you, you, it's OK to want things, but not to get stuck, uh, obsessed with the outcomes. So you do your best. Um, but I think in the end, you know, as, as far as striving versus enjoying, that, too, is a balance. It's all I think it's all on balance. And really, the best human superpower, aside from maybe impulse control, is the ability to drive, is the ability to say, OK, I'm, at this fork in the road, it's better if I'm more this way. 
And at this, this is a time where I need to care more. And this is a time where I need to care less. And I think the, the annoying thing is, is a lot of us know these things, but it's so hard to do them. And that's that balance, I think. And uh, th there's, there's a lot of things that go into that ability to say, I'm going to stop thinking about that and move on to something more productive. I'm going to ask you one last question. Do you think if society was or people were accepted to the fact of what the final answer would be to cure all their problems, do you think they would actually want to know the answer to it? Like if they really sat and thought about it, because I've asked that like so many times to myself, if I could really figure out the one problem that would set me off in the path of direction of spiraling upwards, would I accept that answer? And I just feel like I would just look for another problem. I would try and find another way to be unhappy. There's a lot of aspects where people want the answer to happiness, but necessarily, do they really want the answer? They just want something, you know, I think that could be pushed into anything. It necessarily doesn't have to be a magic, you know, block or something like that. Um, I think if you look at your own life or, or even I look at my own, my own life and I'm like, you know, times when you feel good, I don't know. I won't, I won't even venture as far as to say we should always feel happy because I don't think we can always feel happy, but I think there's times when you're at peace. I think there's times when you feel like you're lighthearted and centered. And I think if you go back, even at your own experience and you find a time when things felt good, you liked how you were thinking, you liked how you were reacting to things that sort of would be the goal, I think. I think those states are attainable either through meditation or medication, biological or psychological interventions. I think the first thing is to actually ask yourself, what is it that you want? How, how do you want to be? You know, and for a lot of the people that I work with, it's really to have that ability to say, well, there's a time I, I need to be intense. I need to care. I need to worry. I need to obsess about this important thing. But then there's some unimportant things that I need to be able to just not. And I need to just accept things for what they are. There's times in life when you need to be a Darwinist, and there's times, I think, when you need to be a Buddhist. And the easier you can switch between those two, I think the, the closer you'll come to finding peace. Because really, like to come back to that balance in nature, there's a time when you need to really care a lot. And there's times in life when you need to just accept what it is, like the serenity prayer, right? The, the wisdom and strength to know the difference. There's times when like you don't need to do anything about it, and there's nothing you can do. Um, so I guess if, if the answer were, hey, is there some magic formula to everlasting peace, let's say. I mean, the, the goal of my work and my book is to find that. And I can tell you that even in my own life, there's been times where I've, I've felt it and I've loved it. And that's something I'm working on, on uh, in, increasing. Well, Alex, where can people find you? You got a Twitter, any of your website? Yeah, so, we're on, uh, so our website is siliconpsych.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook and all that. But uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of blogs and a lot of cool material on our website. And uh, if you, if you find me on psychology today, we've also written quite a bit about uh, the search for peace and, uh, and happiness and, uh, and self-efficacy. I'll make sure I link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure. And it's thanks, pleasure for, to you too. thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.